This Children's Health Coronavirus podcast recorded on April 6th, 2020. As COVID-19 becomes a rising concern around the globe, we'll discuss the evolving epidemiology and clinical aspects of the virus, as well as public health measures designed to approach the situation. This is Pediatric Insights, Advances and Innovations with Children's Health, where we explore the latest in pediatric care and research. I'm Bill Klaproff. With us to discuss COVID-19 insights for providers is Dr. Carla Garcia-Carino, Medical Director for Infection Prevention and Control at Children's Medical Center Plano and Pediatric Infectious Disease Specialist at PID Associates. Dr. Carino, thank you for your time. First off, COVID-19 is a rapidly evolving situation and new information is being shared by the hour. Where can we find the latest information? The best way that we keep ourselves updated is by checking the CDC, Center for Disease Control and Prevention page. And also, as far as the numbers, the Johns Hopkins University has a great dashboard that updates the numbers pretty accurate and often. So those are the two places that I usually go. Okay, good information. And can you discuss the epidemiological and clinical features of COVID-19 and how they are evolving? Certainly, as you said, the epidemiology is constantly evolving. When pandemic processes are described, the growth curve includes an initiation phase, a growth phase, which is usually exponential, a plateau, and finally a deceleration phase. With COVID-19 right now, we're talking about a pandemic disease in the acceleration of exponential growth phase in many parts of the world, especially now in the U.S. we're in that phase and Texas is in that phase. The doubling time has been estimated to be around five to seven days. And the reproduction factor, meaning how many people will get infected from an index patient, is estimated to be two to three. So each individual that has infection may spread it to two to three additional people. That's as far as the epidemiology. Now, clinically, it has been described to cause a wide range of disease from asymptomatic, meaning no symptoms at all, to mild, moderate, and severe disease. The symptoms described include fever, cough, shortness of breath, uh, sore throat, myalgia or muscle pain, headache, anosmia, and diarrhea and vomiting. And uncommonly that in adults, but has been reported in children, upper respiratory congestion. The severe disease has been mostly seen in the elderly population and those with underlying conditions that predispose to severe disease, including diabetes, heart disease, immunosuppressive conditions, chronic lung disease, and chronic kidney disease. In severe cases, pneumonia, ARDS, or acute respiratory distress syndrome, and respiratory failure are linked with an elevated morbidity and mortality. Wow. So people present with a variety of symptoms, and obviously those with underlying conditions certainly are more at risk. So you were talking about the different phases, growth, plateau, decline. We're kind of in growth right now. How does COVID-19 spread? Yeah. So uh, it is a respiratory pathogen, right? So respiratory pathogens spread via the respiratory route, mostly by droplets and by contact with surfaces or fomites contaminated with these droplets. That's why we recommend the uh, the precautions in the healthcare setting uh, of using droplet and contact precautions with eye protection. So what are the respiratory droplets? There are large, medium-sized drops that will fall to the ground within a a six-feet distance. That's the rationale for the social distances more than, you know, six feet apart. 
there are certain cases where we perform aerosol generating procedures like intubating a patient or non-invasive ventilation or giving a nebulized treatment or bronchoscopy suctioning, among other procedures. In those cases, these bigger droplets can be broken down to a smaller particles called aerosols. These aerosols are tiny particles that can remain suspended for a longer distance and a longer period of time. So this is how tuberculosis and measles spread. So it's only recommended that healthcare workers are performing these procedures that we need to take isolation with airborne precautions, meaning being put in the patient in a negative pressure room and a use of a respirator like an N95 mask. And so those masks need to be reserved for these aerosol-generating procedures. So that's why it shouldn't be used in the community. That's not the way COVID-19 spreads. Now, when you take a respiratory sample for diagnosis in the clinic or the hospital, then you may also induce cough and sneezing, which may produce some aerosols. So it's also recommended that you wear an N95 on those circumstances. Right. Those N95 masks are critical for healthcare workers. So let's talk about testing for COVID-19. What specific test is needed to detect COVID-19 and what is the criteria for testing? Sure. So the diagnosis of COVID-19 is by detecting the virus. The virus that causes COVID-19 is called SARS-CoV-2, SARS-Coronavirus-2. And the diagnosis of that is by detecting this virus by real-time PCR. So you, you collect a respiratory sample, you perform the PCR, and at the recommended respiratory sample at this time by the CDC, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, is a nasopharyngeal swab which is the swab from deep in the nose when you reach the nasopharynx. Now, if you cannot get that sample, there are other respiratory samples that can be sent, like an oropharyngeal swab or a lower respiratory sample in case you collect it for some other reason. But in general, the nasopharyngeal swab is the one that's recommended. And that PCR is available at the CDC. Certain public state health departments, including Dallas Health Department, commercial laboratories, and certain institutions uh, Bill now uh, has uh, an in-house testing, meaning that they have the PCR in the hospital. The criteria for testing have evolved depending on the epidemiologic circumstances. Currently, since the U.S. is an area of widespread community transmission, the travel history that used to be relevant recently is not relevant or is less relevant at this time. So clinicians' judgment needs to be considered. If the symptomatic patient has had a contact with a patient diagnosed with COVID-19, then this patient all should be considered as a potential patient on their investigation, what we call PUI. So what the CSC is doing right now is they're prioritizing which patients need to be tested first, since we don't have unlimited availability of testing. And so the CDC says that the priorities are those suspected patients that will be hospitalized, symptomatic healthcare workers, and those patients with high risk of complications, as we were mentioning, the elderly and those with underlying conditions. So those are the main groups that we need to concentrate our testing efforts. Right. And testing is very, very important and will be as we continue on through this pandemic, certainly through decline and after as well. So let's talk about treatment right now. Can you talk about the different clinical treatment methods that are being researched for COVID-19 as these treatment methods are becoming very important as well? 
Right. So right now we don't have anything that has been proven uh, com- completely to be help, uh, helping. We have a lot of clinical trials, but at this point, supported treatment is what is recommended. So I'm going I'm to walk you through what if, uh, some, some options that we are studying in the U.S. right now. Remdesivir is a nucleoside analog that has three clinical trials at the NIH, at the National Institute of Health at this moment. There is a phase two double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trial, and there are two phase three open-label trials. So this is the medication that has been shown more promising in certain reports from China, and they also had had China randomized clinical trials. There is another medication called hydroxychloroquine that probably you've heard on the news a lot. It's an anti-malarial and anti, uh, and an immunomodulator medication. It's also being studied in clinical trials for pre-exposure and post-exposure prophylaxis, as well as treatment of mild, moderate, and severe disease. However, we need to be careful with this medication because there is some concern for cardiac arrhythmias, prolonged QT syndrome, and the cardiac rhythm needs to be closely monitoring. A small study in France that used this combination with acetromycin showed also some biological advantage, but this study was not randomized and the group, including the control group, was not well-defined. So I will be careful interpret, uh, interpreting this study. There was also a fairly big study in adults with calitra uh, or lopinavir-ritonavir, which is used for HIV. And that study did not show significant benefit in, in China. Nowadays, there is something also the option of plasma, using plasma from convalescent patients, so those patients that have recovered fully from COVID-19, 14 days after they recover, you can take their serum and use it to treat patients with severe disease. This is being considered by the FDA and could be evaluated on a case-by-case basis through participation in clinical trials or potentially by using as an emergency investigational new drug. And lastly, as you know, the vaccine is also coming along. It's being trialed in certain volunteers, but that has several phases in the study, and we wouldn't have a vaccine available for 12 to 18 months, unfortunately. And we are all pulling for those researchers who are tirelessly working on treatments and vaccines. Dr. Carino, can you also talk about how healthcare professionals are approaching care for COVID-19 based on current clinical descriptions of the virus and the fact that at this time there is no official treatment? So as you mentioned, there is no official treatment. There is nothing that has been shown in clinical trials to be beneficial yet. The trials are ongoing. So right now what we have under our sleeves is to provide supported treatment. This is what is indicated at this time, providing oxygen when it's needed and more advanced respiratory support depending on the circumstances. It is also really important to point that for healthcare workers, practicing all infection prevention and isolation procedures in the healthcare facilities is key also to protect other patients and to protect our healthcare workers themselves. So basically supported treatment, what we have available at this time. Supportive treatment, got it. So then you just mentioned isolation procedures. Can you describe the current prevention measures that are being practiced for the COVID-19 pandemic and how they are constantly evolving? The most important preventive measures are the public health interventions that uh, include mitigation processes. I'm going to talk first in the community, and then I'm going to tell you in the hospital what we're doing. Uh, So at times when you have widespread community activity of the disease, like is happening in many places in the U.S., 
Containment becomes more difficult. And what is containment? Is identifying sick individuals and the contact tracing of those sick individuals. So right now, because of the many patients that are infected, that's not reasonable anymore. So what we're doing now are mitigation strategies. These mitigation strategies include social distancing and the shelter in place as is being recommended. In this manner, we may not decrease the total number of cases, but we can certainly flatten that curve. So uh, this number of cases will occur in a longer period of time. With this, we can assure that we will have the resources in the hospital to take care of the COVID-19 cases, included the so much needed beds, so much needed ventilators, and of course, the available personal protective equipment or PPE. So we usually tell the community and us as pediatricians need to continue our job of educating parents or family members that we need their help of, for social distancing. It's also important that people know that they should stay at home, only leaving the place for special activities, not going out when sick, only to seek medical care, and those facilities will need to be called in advance for the medical care if possible. And then practice all infection prevention measures, uh, which include the frequent hand washing for 20 seconds. I know it looks like a very rudimentary tool, but that's very important at this point. Cough and sneeze etiquette and cleaning high touch areas as well uh, once a day at home. Now, uh, the using of masks in the community is now recommended by the CDC that we can consider using uh, masks, including cloth masks, but we need to prioritize the medical masks available for healthcare workers and those frontline personnel taking care of sick uh, people. The masks will mostly protect others from getting sick, with what we call source control, rather than protecting the person wearing the mask. Uh, and that person wearing the mask should... Um, be overly conscious of not touching the face frequently while wearing the mask because that tends to happen a lot. Uh, currently, use of closed masks is not recommended in the healthcare facilities. We still need to prioritize the medical mask for the healthcare facilities. And as you talk about flattening the curve, helping to conserve resources in hospitals, can you talk about the current strategies that are being put in place to optimize hospital supplies? So shortages of supplies, as you said, especially personal protective equipment or what we call PPE, is definitely a challenging situation that many hospitals worldwide and in the U.S. are currently facing. Many institutions, in anticipation for this situation and knowing that we may not uh, restock uh, whatever we use anytime soon, we have different strategies for conserving that PPE or personal protective equipment. So the first step of that is by decreasing the need of use of PPE. So what the hospitals are doing are rescheduling or postponing non-urgent visits and non-urgent surgeries and procedures as that uh, those particular procedures will use additional PPE that otherwise we need to save. We also have decreased the number of staff visiting a patient and again to salvaguard that PPE available. We're implementing use of telehealth instead of personal visits so we can address people's concerns and many of the questions can be addressed by telehealth rather than having the patient visit the hospital. So that's what we're doing for decreasing the need for PPE. On the other hand, what we're also using is maximizing the use of available PPE. This includes things like extended use of PPE, what I call the head PPE. So the head PPE is the mask 
and the eye protection that is recommended for uh, to take care of these patients. So if you, for example, put your COVID patients all in one ward or one wing of the hospital, you could walk from room to room just wearing the same head PPE and not needing to change that. So that's what we call extended use of PPE. Also, certain institutions are also evaluating about reuse of PPE and decontaminating the mask. So, for example, the goggles can be wiped down after you're done, and preferably if you use it for the whole shift, then you take it out and you clean it, uh, being very careful. And then the mask, the N95 masks, are, um, in many institutions are being recollected for decontamination so we can use it several times. So several institutions are decontaminating this mask. So let's talk about children for a minute. I know many parents are worried about this. What do we currently know when it comes to the pediatric population and COVID-19? Well, this is probably a silver lining in all of this situation. In general, COVID-19 has been described both less frequently in the pediatric population and less severe uh, than in adults. The case series have reported that from all the cases, 1% to 2% of cases affected children 19-year-old and, and younger. This has been reproduced in reports from China, South Korea, and Italy. So as I was saying, not only by numbers, but also the disease severity has been less than in the older population. And there is a big chance that many of these kids may even be asymptomatic. So the symptoms that have been described have been similar to the adult symptomatology, but also they have more upper respiratory involvement than adults and more congestion than the lower respiratory manifestations that adults have. A study from China, which is an imprint in the, in the pediatrics journal, showed that from 731 confirmed pediatric cases, critical disease that uh, they define as ARDS or acute respiratory distress syndrome, respiratory failure and shock occurred only in 0.4% of the cases. So way less than the adult population. A study of nine infants younger than 12 months of age hospitalized in China reported no need for intensive care unit admission or ICU admissions and no need for mechanical ventilation. So, so far, this is what we have seen. And in the United States, that has also been seen. In Texas, the number of cases in less than 19 years of age have compromised 0.6% of all the cases. Well, that is good news to hear those numbers. So thank you for sharing that with us. That's for sure. So lastly, Dr. Carino, and thank you so much for your time. Do you have one main takeaway for healthcare providers about COVID-19? Definitely. I will say, I mean, these are stressful times when we worry about our patients, we worry about ourselves and our families. So we need To me, one of the most important points is that we need to stay informed of both epidemiology and the recommendations for care of these patients. Knowing and having that information will make us more objective objective thinkers. We can do it, as I said, by regularly checking the CDC webpage, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, as we were mentioning. Also, other sources include the WHO, World Health Organization, and our local state department uh, pages, because we will know what is happening in our community. It's also really important to read from trusted medical sources. And we need to be careful as many publications right now are being put out uh, before peer review is completed because they want to make all the medical community to have this information available as soon as possible. But we need to be careful with what we read. So being informed will help us think objectively, as I was saying, for our patients. 
It is also equally important to take our time and practice good infection prevention precautions, including the appropriate use of PPE. It's really important that we don't rush in to see a patient, but take all the proper steps for putting on our PPE and for taking off our PPE that is already contaminated. And then hand washing, as we were mentioning, the very old medical tool for infection prevention is still critical in these challenging times. Well, that's the perfect way to wrap it up, Dr. Carino. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Have a good day. That's Dr. Carla Garcia Carino. And thanks for listening to Pediatric Insights. For more information, please visit childrens.com slash COVID-19. And if you found this podcast helpful, please rate and review or share this episode. And please follow Children's Health on your social channels. This is Pediatric Insights, Advances and Innovations with Children's Health. Thanks for listening.